silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing experience? This season, we are all about kids on bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble, and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is, let's face it, essential to the plot. I'm Drew, game enthusiast. I'm Rafe, film critic. And today we are talking, oh, I'm so excited about this, 1987's The Lost Boys, written by Jan Fisher and James Jeremias, and adapted to screen by Jeffrey Bohm, directed by Joel Schumacher, starring Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Patrick, Diane Wiest, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, among others. Uh, Rafe, please give me your elevator pitch for The Lost Boys. All right. The elevator pitch is a family, which includes kids uh, of appropriate age, come to a new town and discover that there's a reason why it is referred to as the murder capital of the world, as there is a den of vampires that threatens their family's existence. Uh, I would just add a den of Teenage vampires. Yes, teenage. Uh, very handsome, attractive, never has a mullet looked so good vampires. <laughs> uh, so I, I was listening to a Kiefer Sutherland interview today, and he apologized for his contribution to the popularity of the mullet. Uh, and he explained sort of why, how that haircut came to be. But that's besides the point. Rafe, this was your selection. This was. Why? Did you choose The Lost Boys? Well, in the movies that we've discussed so far, we haven't really had to dive into the idea of a super-powered character, and I, I wanted to steer us in that direction. Uh, as you know, uh, and anyone who listened to our last intermission knows, I had several movies picked, uh, but that was kind of the common theme, as well as apparently a magical, well, not a magical carousel, but a carousel nonetheless. Uh, that was also a common theme upon, among them, apparently. But I wanted to get into talking a little bit about supernatural powers, which we haven't really discussed so far. Yeah, there's plenty of those, uh, and they seem to come and go, depending on the situation. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to go ahead and state this right off the bat, uh, Rafe, Lost Boys is to me and my teenage years as The Goonies was to you and whenever it was that you saw it, uh, <laughs> the preteen age years, right? Like, this is my jam, and I'm a little concerned that I'm not going to be able to create a cogent argument or even conversation about this film because I'm just flapping my hands in front of my face and squeeing with excitement and, I, and I'm not saying this ironically I have a big old grin on my face because we're going to talk about the Lost Boys I'm super super psyched about it yeah and I should add in uh, we record with our cameras on so we can see each other he literally was flapping fanning his face with his hands he he really is uh, that that excited about this movie which I am too like this is a favorite film of mine uh, I was not kidding last month when I said or last episode when I said uh, that we probably could have hit end on that and hit record and just gone ahead and done our episode on it at that point. Because when I took notes watching the movie, as I do, I took very little notes because so much of this movie is already locked up here. 
that that I didn't need to jot down a lot to refer to. I think this is the first time I have watched The Lost Boys with a critical eye. I mean, this is one of those films where, you know, on uh, have not seen this podcast. And, you know, all the movies that we've talked about are movies that are important part, uh, you know, part of my life. And I've watched, I, I think, anywhere between 20 and 30 times each. Lost Boys was one of those VHS copies where I would put it in when I got home from school and just have it playing in the background all the time. I've seen it probably 50 plus times and sitting down and watching it for this podcast uh, was really different because I, I, it's got to be at least a decade since I had seen it and looking at it with that sort of critical eye or from a, a gamification standpoint, it, it felt new and exciting and uh, I found new things to really love about it and, and a couple of things to not enjoy as much because it's a very different film when you're in your um, than it was when I was, you know, 12, 14, whatever, when it came out. So, so, so Drew, you, you just yeah. said you, you watched it. It was the type you threw the videotape in and, and watched. When was the first time you saw this movie? Okay. I have two stories here because the first time uh, I watched this movie was in my own head. It's 1989. I'm sitting in the back of the pickup truck with Matt Kimball. Matt Kimball, we're outside of G.D. Ritzy's uh, Fast Food in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And he, Matt's one of those older kids. You know, we all have that older kid who, like, introduces you to things that your parents probably wouldn't introduce you to. Uh, now, your mind may go in different directions with that statement. Matt Kimball was the guy who introduced me to all of those things. And he was like, I watched this movie last night. It's called The Lost Boys. Let me tell you about it. And then he told me everything that happened it's it's sort of where my love of listening to other people talk about movies came from. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Ruin podcast, highly recommend the Ruin podcast because it's essentially ruining horror movies. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily considered a horror movie, but listening to his description of what happens in the film and how he interpreted it, um, what sounded fascinating to me, and of course this is back in the day before you know the internet and and before DVDs, and so maybe even before blockbuster video. Uh, as soon as this became available, it was one of those films where I went out. I rented it, watched it, watched it again. So I'm thinking couldn't have been any later than 1990 when I saw it. I'm thinking probably late 1989. Uh, 1989 is probably when I saw it. How about you? I, I don't have a distinct memory of the first time I saw it, but it's probably around that same time frame. Uh, I was not old enough to go see it in theaters. Uh, and as I've talked about on the show before, my parents were very protective of what I watched. But I, I know... Uh, once I kind of moved into that PG-13 and introduction to horror movies and that kind of stuff, that this was one of the first ones I saw. So probably 89, 90 sounds about right for me as well. And I yeah. instantly fell. I mean, I, I knew Kiefer Sutherland already from Stand By Me. Of course, the Corys were famous at the point at this point. So so they were, you know, icons. And uh, I, I, I instantly fell in love with this movie. Uh, it was one of the first movie soundtracks that I bought back on cassette tape. And I have bought it on cassette tape, and I have bought it on DVD, and I'm pretty sure I bought a digital copy of it as well, because it is a killer soundtrack. It really is amazing. It probably even was my introduction to The Doors, even though it is not The Doors singing People Are Strange on the soundtrack. It's Echo and the Bunnymen. It was definitely my introduction to Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, <laughs> and I, I will... I will echo your statement uh, in that uh, this is one of the first soundtracks that I bought with my own money. In fact, I remember uh, I remember buying this. I was in Athens, Georgia, uh, and we had just come back from watching 
Terminator 2. <sighs> and uh, we went into a, I don't know, it was a you know, record bar or whatever. Uh, actually, no, it's right. Athens, Georgia probably had an, a really good independent music store. I bought this one uh, for the Lost Boys and I bought the soundtrack to um, pump up the volume. Uh, and so I, I consider that the weekend that sort of changed my life musically because between the two of those soundtracks, I was introduced to a ton of great music. It's a totally different conversation, but um, just that purchase, those two purchases really repositioned the kind of direction my musical tastes were, were headed in at the time. Uh, I think the first, uh, this was one, as I said, one of the first movie soundtracks I bought. I think Terminator 2 was also one of the first ones to tie it into your story. Uh, so this was, you know, like rock soundtrack and then Terminator 2 was score. So, you know, heading, taking me in both the directions. <laughs> but we're taking a tangent. Let's talk about Lost Boys rated uh, at Rotten Tomatoes at 77%, which seems a little low to me, an audience score of 85%, which feels a little more on par with where it should be. And as we normally do when we look at movies, we look at the good, the bad, the ugly, the highlights, the bad bits, and the worst bits. Drew, kick us off. What do you think is the good for The Lost Boys? Uh, I think there's... So, (laughs) again... You know, when you have something that was so influential, it's very difficult to synthesize a critical thought. Um, It's very hard for me to separate this from my own nostalgia Um, because I I was like, I'm not going to be able to come up with anything bad for this. (laughs) Rafe, I think it's safe to say the soundtrack, we've already discussed that. I want to then move on to the cast. I think this is an exceptionally good cast. Um, Your leads with the Corys. They're fine, but when you start to move into, I think, Kiefer Sutherland, again, having already been introduced to him on Stand By Me, Kiefer Sutherland is a consummate bad guy, even for someone who was essentially in his late teens, early 20s. Um, He was a menacing figure. I think it's impossible to look at him at that time as anything but a threat. Jason Patrick's fine. He's easy on the eyes. Um, Diane Weist, who I had no appreciation for at the time and now have nothing but just the highest esteem. I think she's essentially wasted in this film, but she, she does a lot with the little that she's given. Uh, Yeah. I think this is, the cast is really good because unlike horror films, or I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna say teen films, teen films that we start getting in the, um, mid to later 90s where they start casting 20 and 30 year olds in the part of 16 year olds the all the cast members of this movie were only essentially two or three years older than than what they're being cast at so like our youngest characters who are supposed to be playing 13 14 are like 15 16 jason patrick's in his early 20s Kiefer sutherland they're in the early 20s so i think it's actually a, quite a strong i'm going to put in, in air quotes teen cast for a a, a youth or teen focused, targeted movie. How about you? Uh, To me, one of the things that I really have grown to appreciate about this movie, uh, especially looking at it now with a critical eye, is how much is done by showing but not showing. Like all of the the aerial camera angles when the vampires are, are flying through the air and they're attacking people on the ground or they're attacking the car or that kind of thing. And you you don't see the vampires actually fly until 
well, the first real sign of it is Michael, who can't control his flight, you know, falling out the window and, and needing the rescue. But you don't really see them, the big flight, uh, until, like, the final battle. But yet, it's it's simulated throughout the film just by creative use of camera, of, of using the point-of-view camera instead of uh, spending a lot of money on special effects that they probably couldn't afford because this wasn't a huge budgeted film. So I, I, I really have an appreciation for for that. The amount that is implied without being directly shown is something that I think is still quite masterful about this movie. Yeah, I agree. And there's something else, too, with the story. Th- this is an interesting story setup because this is a film that if you look uh, on sort of the uh, what its genre is, I would have assumed it was a horror film. You, No one calls itself a teen movie, right? Right. Lost Boys is considered a comedy, uh, which is very weird to me, and, and that seems like a weird marketing thing. But for what it was, which is a fairly groundbreaking amalgamation of teen movie, comedy, action film, and horror movie, it has a very complex story structure that... I haven't seen in films uh, or storytelling uh, until Stranger Things, Mm. which is there are three separate stories that are happening here with a a varying degree of emphasis. Uh, The kind of the strongest story uh, is their kids story, right? We have what's happening with Sam and and the Frog Brothers. Then we've got our teen story, which is what's happening with Michael and the vampires, which is a very, very different relationship. And then there's sort of an adult story happening with the mom. And while that is definitely the least of the stories... There is an arc there because we do get to spend a little bit of time with her and we do get a POV of kind of what she's thinking and doing. She's not just a background character. There is a bit of a story there. Again, it's the least of them, but that I feel in some ways is quite a strength. When we get to the bad parts, I'll explain why it's a weakness as well. Um, (laughs) Do you have anything else of the good? I have one more thing, but I I definitely want to throw it back to you. Um, For me, the other thing is I just, I really like the world building that's done in this film. You know, the the setting, the Santa Carla as a whole, and, you know, kind of the grittiness of it, especially at Grandpa's house, Uh, especially when you get into, like, the taxidermy animals. And it just, this feels like an old, lived-in, old man lives here kind of house. But yet then contrasted with the boardwalk setting, which I absolutely love. Like, that to me is, and I'm sure we'll get into it on the gamification side of things, but that is the setting to really focus on. But then you have the the, the vampire lair, and you have, I mean, it just, I, I love the world building that goes on. And, and like, one of the little subtle things, like when they're, I guess maybe not so subtle, but when they're driving in the big graffiti on the back of the billboard that says, you know, welcome to the murder, murder capital of the world, and, and the all the, the lost children signs in the background when Diane Weiss character is you know on the boardwalk and looking for a job and you just that it, it, to me they make this feel like a very real location just as, as in the Goonies or as in Attack the Block like that's that's a solid element of this film yeah agreed and I, I'm just go ahead and just say it we're gonna spoiler uh, it's very gonna be a very uh, spoilerific uh, review of this movie so we're gonna yeah we're gonna be spoily um I think uh, along with that, we also get to see how each of those individuals interact with those set pieces. What I really dig about the boardwalk is very little action happens at the boardwalk, even though it's the busiest visually. All the action is happening in a home, in a den, uh, but the boardwalk is where the narrative takes place, which seems almost counterintuitive, and it's where it 
shows a lot of the story rather than tells us a lot of the story. Diane Weiss doesn't seem to notice these missing kid posters. We know she's a sympathetic individual, but she's a little bit flaky, right? So she, at first thing, she sees kids who are kind of wandering the street and she gets Sam to give them money to buy them food. But the posters are in the background behind her where it's sort of like, you know what, mom, maybe this is not the best place to move to. Uh, when you start looking at the house and you're talking about grandpa's uh, collection, it's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it has is. that gritty kind of grimy feel to it, which is really cool. And it adds to maybe there's something up with the house. You know, it sets up that great initial, is grandpa dead when we arrive at the house? If he's dead, can we go back to Phoenix kind of a storyline? Um, which, of course, it's not. But the other thing that I wanted to mention, because, you know, I'm a story guy. I love my plots. The genesis of this story, which is very different from the original script, is a retelling of Peter Pan. Uh, yeah. And, you know, hence the name The Lost Boys. But what's so fun is that Peter Pan is the bad guy in this story. <laughs> he's just looking for his Wendy to take care of the children. Right? Like, he wants to take mom back to Neverland to take care of his little vampire brood. He's going to invite her children to come along with. And it's a fine line to look at Kiefer Sutherland's vampire and his vampire gang and think of them as teenagers. Because I think it's fairly safe to say they are still just that. They are recently turned vampires. I don't think they're particularly old. I don't think that they were there when the, the hotel collapsed in the Great Earthquake. I think they are probably only a couple years older than uh, Michael. It, it feels that way, and I've always thought of it that way, and I, I think this most recent watching kind of emphasized that. I haven't read anything to the contrary. You know, none of them. David is not an old soul. He is a recently turned teen. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, one, that is a brilliant analysis of this, because I've always just taken it as the Lost Boys as an allusion to Peter Pan. I never thought about the fact that Max is the Peter Pan figure here. He is looking for a mother for his Lost That's brilliant. I've never thought of that before. Oh, my God. But to get to this, the second point, that was something I jotted down, because I said when I picked this movie that I never thought of it as a kids on bikes movie, because I always focused on the vampires. But then there is a line in there when Michael has, has his behavior has changed, because as we know, he's transforming into a vampire, and he's become sullen, and he's wearing the sunglasses, and his mother says things are going to change around here when school starts. And I was like, wait a minute. How old is Michael? Because if Michael is impacted by school starting, then he is still under 18. And therefore, this is a full on kids on bikes movie. And I'm a dummy for not realizing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as you said it, I was just like, mm. you know, and when sometimes we talk about whether or not there's a, a kids on bikes movie. I'm 100% behind this as being a kids on bikes movie, because I think, you know, while we never see Sam on a bike, we never see the Frog Brothers on a bike. They're driving cars. Michael's got a, a motorcycle and all the vampires have a motorcycle. The vampires are essentially, I think, between the ages of physically the ages of uh, 17, 18, 19, roughly late teens, early 20s. Now, they might be a couple of years older than that, but I, I think they're turned and they have their own bike gang. And, and there's in the same way that attack <laughs> our discussion of attack the block was a subversion of the kids on bikes trope lost boys is essentially a subversion of our definition of the kids on bikes where the kids on bikes in this film are the vampires they're the bad guys uh and mm -hmm. while we do have younger kids who are traveling in a car i mean it still works the exact same way they they have a mode of transportation they're still in a central location santa carla is 
a world that is vividly alive in my imagination. Um, I have created numerous role-playing games in which the characters interact in a in a domain much like this. Mainly, they were Shadowrun games, but it doesn't. Um, so yeah, uh, I think all of those are very good. The things that, that we haven't even really talked about the direction. Uh, again, this is a Joel Schumacher, and it's one of those things where when I think of Schumacher, of course, I'm thinking uh, nipples on Batman and. Uh, and it it always kind of frustrates me to think of this film as a Schumacher film. But the more I have dug into his filmography, I'm like, no, actually, there's some real Schumacher qualities to what he's done here in, in a good way. Like, I'm, I oh, don't yeah. think Schumacher, who, you know, sadly just passed away last year. It's kind of crazy to think at a fairly young age. Yeah. So um, anything else positive about this film before we move on to the bad? No, I think it's time to move on to the bad. Cool. Uh, tell me something bad about this movie, Rafe. Something bad about this movie. I mean, I was I was a teenage boy once upon a time. You were a teenage boy once upon a time. I can confidently say teenage boys do not take baths and act like that in the bathtub. And that bathtub scene is still cringy AF. <laughs> uh, I would be lying, Rafe. I would be lying if I didn't say I have emulated that bathtub scene several times. Since watching Lost I, Boys. I stand corrected then, but to me, it's the bad. <laughs> yeah. So this film, like I had mentioned earlier, straddles the line of several different genres. I think it is a perfect gateway R film because it the violence is not particularly violent. The profanity is not particularly profane. There's very little sex. I will get to that in a moment. Uh, I think if you are introducing a young viewer who can handle this kind of stuff to horror movies, this is a great one to start them off with. I think regardless of what the genre was supposed to be, they definitely targeted teenagers. This was Schumacher going, hey, you know, vampires are definitely very different in cinema. And this is just at the beginning of the craziest time for vampire cinema. Mm -hmm. I want to focus on that in a few minutes, but the bad of this movie is I don't feel it has a good grasp on what genre it actually is. There are very comedic moments which break up the tension. There's decent action sequences, but I don't feel like... I feel like there's some darker moments for the kids' scenes that make them almost too dark. The teen scenes feel out of place. The adult scenes seem kind of weird, and it's tonally a little chaotic. And I think that's not overall to the movie's strength. So in in one way, it's a great gateway. In another way, that is actually a, a step back. Hmm. See, I, to me, I mean, I, I get what you were saying a minute ago about Schumacher and the nipples on the bat suit because that is what everybody goes to. But I, I do think he made some really solid films, especially in this era. And to me, that that kind of almost tonal inconsistency, or not, not a tonal inconsistency as much as a refusal to be defined by genre, is almost a mark of some of Schumacher's films. I mean, you think about this, you think of uh, Flatliners, you know, what genre does that fit into? You know, it, and that's something I, I like about Schumacher films. So I, I don't know that I see that as a bad. I mean, I respect that you do, but I, I don't know that I'm on the same page with that. Uh, which I guess makes sense because you don't agree with my bad because you experienced it. So, Like I was saying, it's very difficult for me to find bad things. <laughs> right. I had to find something to stick around with. And, I, and watching it, I was like, would I show this to a 10-year-old? I probably would not show this to a 10-year-old. Uh, it depends on the 10-year-old. But, you know, it's it's an R-rated film. I also think it there's nothing in it that screams R-rated for 
an 18 year old, you know, like that sort of a thing. Uh, right. So especially by today's standards. Well, yeah, <laughs> especially by today's standards. This feels like a strong PG-13. Yeah. How about ugly? Uh, is there something in particularly ugly about this film? You're you're not going to like my answer to this one because this is a nitpicky thing, but it has bothered me in the past watching this movie, and it especially bothered me this time watching this movie, and that is, those are the wrong teeth to be fangs. Those are not the canines. Those are the, the, the second teeth that become fangs when they become vampires, and I don't like it. It looks dumb. I think it looks ugly it bothers me about this film like that that seems to me like an attention to detail and I, I, obviously it was a conscious choice but i don't get it it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever well i i haven't read what the the makeup folks and i know that the makeup department was headed up by the legendary v neil but I, I would imagine that they were looking at a way to separate their vampires from other vampires and i know also that joss whedon had said that the makeup effects in this especially when they quote vamp out uh, helped inspire Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I think it. I think that it's just that, and I agree. I, I remember watching this for the first time, going, "Those aren't the right teeth." But at the same time, when we start talking about vampire powers and superpowers, what this film also does is it sort of gets the vampire mythology right in the way that we are expecting it, but also it sort of subverts what does and does not work with vampires. And I think choosing a different set of teeth, that's a flex that we don't see in a lot of vampire films. I mean, like sometimes we get vampires have all sharp teeth, right? Like when they vamp out, everything becomes sharp and pointy and nasty and they don't gently and romantically suck the blood from the neck. It's like tearing and slashing. And so, I mean, vampire, this again, this is the beginning of the great vampire glut. Uh, of of cinema where we were getting a vampire like getting three to five vampire movies every single year for almost 10 years and this is the beginning this is one of the things that sort of kicked it off and introduced people like me to the genre and that's where it gets ugly Uh, for me the main thing i think i have an issue with aside from the sex scene uh, which i feel comes out of nowhere and feels really out of place again it's just like it's not particularly sexy per se, um, even though uh, one of our folks on the Facebook group is like, this is the beginning of my uh, fascination with uh, Jamie Gertz. And I'm like, nothing wrong with Jamie Gertz. I was watching this movie for the vampires. But um, <laughs> that sex scene really does feel like awkward and out of place tonally. It kind of changes the momentum of where the film's going. And it feels like a throwback to if this is only a teenage movie with Michael as the protagonist and only main focus of the film, that makes more sense for the Lost Boy analogy in that, like, this is us going puberty in the same way that Ginger Snaps, fantastic movie, is about puberty, and but it's a werewolf film. I sort of get these two individuals that are thrown together because they're both fighting these urges, and then they kind of sort of give in. The ugly for me is how much this movie affected me uh, and how much my social status became more awkward because of my obsession with vampire films, especially these films. Um, <laughs> how much I I wanted to be David from this film. I have Halloween photos somewhere, probably hidden in a, in a locked box uh, of me with basically that haircut, uh, wearing that jacket with those piercings. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was the ugly part is is just how much I internalized this stupid movie. <laughs> I don't think you can blame the movie for that. 
I think I just did, but no, you're right. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I was an awkward teen who absorbed media, um, uh, far more dramatically than I probably needed to. And this was just the media I was absorbing. Yeah. Yeah. Good, bad, and ugly. Anything else? I, I think it's a testament to our individual love for this film that for the first time in, in the history of doing this so far, we both defended the movie against the other one's bad and ugly comments. <laughs> yeah, and, and don't get... When we rate this film, I am not going to let my nostalgia and love for this film color the fact uh, when I rate it, but I think it is what it... I think this film is is what it is, right? <laughs> I think, you know, there's some really good bits. I, there's some cringy bits, but I feel like you kind of have to just take it as a whole... Mm-hmm. Because if you do what we just did, which is nitpick about <laughs> weird tonal flux and stuff, it's it still feels like a popcorn movie, and that's what it is. It's a it's Schumacher doing a sexy vampire popcorn action film with an R rating, but that's aimed at teens and younger viewers. It is just what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as you said, it it is kind of the gateway to a trend of vampire movies that then kind of overwhelmed Hollywood for a number of years. It's also worth noting, uh, I made the comment a minute ago when I when I saw it, that, you know, the Corys were famous uh, by then, but this was what put them on the map. This is what mixed, matched the two Corys together for the first time, leading to a nation of teenage girls needing to call the Cory hotline uh, as seen on The Simpsons. Oh, and apparently Drew, based so on true. the facial expression he's giving. <laughs> Did you did you call the Corey hotline, Drew? I wasn't aware of the phenomenon of the Corys. I didn't realize who the Corys were, to be honest. When I look at the list of Corey movies, they very few of them are ones that I watched. So, like, yes, big fan of the Lost Boys. I don't think I ever saw License to Drive. Don't think I ever watched Dream a Little Dream. I had I was aware of both of those movies, though. Yeah, I just I they weren't a part of the zeitgeist for me like in the same way this is you're gonna be probably shocked by this i didn't watch 16 candles i didn't watch the breakfast club like none of those films were a part of my childhood so john hughes films the only john hughes film the only two john hughes films i saw before i was out of my teens was home alone and ferris bueller's day off so like that sort of 80s what was popular you know i know that teen is it teen beat tiger beat Tiger beat. Yeah, whatever the whatever that was. Like that wasn't a part of my life. I didn't didn't grow up with sisters. I, I guess just I wasn't a part. Like New Kids on the Block was a popular thing that that people liked. But like the Corys, the Corys were always going to be the folks in in the Lost Boys to me. But they were never uh, capital T, capital C. The Corys. Fair enough. Okay, we're done looking at the movie. Uh, it's almost time to rate it. But uh, we always talk about this, uh, Drew. Of the kids depicted in Lost Boys, which kid were you who closely resembles uh, what you were like at that age? This is a lot trickier than the last two films that we reviewed because there just aren't as many kids. Right. Um, I definitely wasn't Michael. You know, he was just too cool. So I'm really like only looking at three potential uh, candidates here. And I I, I think, uh, I hate to say, I don't have the confidence of Sam even though I certainly had the nerdiness when it came to comic books, uh, I probably would have corrected people at a comic book shop. I think I'm going to have to go with Edgar Frog, um, mainly because there's a level of intensity that he maintains throughout this <laughs> film that is so antithetical to what would be considered a polite social 
situation uh that that seems to be me it would either be edgar or alan frog uh both of which are uh, unnecessarily intense maybe even alan frog would make more sense because he's like the least memorable of the two (laughs) well i i was definitely more akin to sam uh i definitely had the confidence yeah uh, of him, I, I was I was definitely a nerd. I did not do the bathtub thing. That's that's not me. But other than that, I was definitely you know I, I'm I'm wondering if we shouldn't kill this segment because every month we have talked about which kid we were in a means of berating who we were as children. <laughs> I mean, listen, if you want to know which character I was, which kid I was, just find the spaz. Right, um, right. like I was. I was the spaz. So if, if it's which kid is the spazziest in this group? Yeah, it's going to be Edgar Frog. I think it's fine. I, I do like <laughs> it because eventually we are going, we're going to find it harder and harder with some of our picks moving forward too. So I I think it's fun. I, I enjoy it. It I it is interesting to watch a movie and go, all right, which one am I? Not which one did I want to be? Because right. honestly, I wanted to be David. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, he was the cool one. All right, it's time to re- to rate the movie uh, for new listeners, or just as a reminder for old listeners, we rate our movies on a double axis scale, uh, rating it from one to ten as to how good of a movie it is overall, and then how good it is within the genre, which is to say, kids on bikes. So, Drew, on a scale of one to ten, how good of a film overall is The Lost Boys? Yeah, once again, um, having to wrestle with. Uh my love of this film but if i have to take a look i mean if, let's go back and look at how i rated the other movies uh as a film i thought goonies was a 7.5 tack the block 8.5 i'm gonna give the lost boys even though i i love it and it's a part of who i am i'm gonna give it a 7.5 because i again i think there are some aspects of the script that just don't like action seems to happen for reasons it has to happen yeah, I, I think it's a, a pretty high score, but I don't think it's an amazing film from an actual critical eye. How about you? I'm sorry. I thought you loved this movie. I'm a little confused now because I, I definitely like it more than that. I Ah, but this is not this is not how much we like it. It's how good of a film it is. Yeah, and I think it's a damn good film. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going higher than you. Um, I, I'm giving this a, a solid nine. I think I think you could get rid of the sex scene. I think there's a couple of transitional moments that could have played another a, a little smoother. But I think it's definitely a movie that is style over substance, but the substance is still there. So I'm going with a nine for it overall. Go for it, man. Go for it. Uh, 14 year old me is angry at, at something year old me. Uh, and that's fine. I can live with that. All right. Within the genre, how good of a movie is this as a kids on bikes movie? Well, while you and I both agree that this is definitely a kids on bikes film, um, I think it's definitely strays away from the template set forth by movies like E.T. or Goonies. Um, and while I think it still fits firmly in the concept, uh, I think as a kids on bikes film, I'm giving it a seven. So, uh, I, of course we gave Goonies a 10 attack the block an 8.5 seven, uh, for, for kids on bikes. And mainly one of the main reasons is how the movie is resolved is the kids don't basically, there's a couple of things like in Goonies where things just happen. And then an adult comes in and saves them at, with the, at the end, which I think is fine, but I think it drops that down a little bit of a notch. 
Yeah. I gave Goonies a 10 for a kids on bikes movie because we discussed it kind of as the, the, the definitive sure. version. Uh, and I give it, gave attack the block a six, which I'm now starting to think maybe that was a little low to give that because this in some ways is less of a kids on bikes movie because we do have a whole storyline focused on adults, uh, which mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily think makes for a good kids on bike movie, but I, I'm i going to tie it with Attack the Block as a six at the low end of what I think really should be. I mean, if we get below a six, then why are we talking about that movie on this podcast? But I, I no, I'm going to go higher. I'm going to say it's a seven. I'm going to give it a seven uh, as a Kids on Bikes movie as well. Sure. I, I don't think any of those are unfair ratings. Yeah. All right. It is time for our and our listeners' favorite part of the movie portion of this podcast, and that is our Kids on Bikes draft. Each of us has a Kids on Bikes team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult that we are putting together, picking from the movies uh, that we have watched. Uh, thus far, Drew, who have you picked for your team? Uh, from the Goonies, I chose Data. And from Attack the Block, I chose Moses. And right. how about you, Rafe? For me, from the Goonies, I chose Mikey as my kind of leader slash heart soul of the team. And from Attack the Block, I chose Pest. So I have a little bit of variety in my pick. Now, unfortunately for me, I picked this movie. So Drew gets to pick his character first for the draft. But before we do, I believe you have some questions for, for clarification here, Drew. Now... Don't have this as a reflection of what you what I'm actually going to eventually pick. Of course not. But I thought I would just ask the clarification because one of the things that I feel like we we missed out on with Attack the Block is neither one of us uh, chose the kid kids. And I thought if you had chosen Mayhem and Props, I would have said if you chose one, you get the other one because I, I don't know if how effectively they're going to be. You know, I think two of them equals one of our regular kids. So I wanted some clarification, mainly for just for fun, but also in case it influenced either one of our decisions. So we are, of course, when we choose these characters, they are either going to be either pre or post vampire, right? So if, if one of us chooses Michael, you're not getting vamped out, Michael. We're not getting super a super powered character. We're still trying to create a mundane group of kids. We are in agreement with that, correct? Correct. If we choose Sam, do we get Nanook? <laughs> and if not... Could we choose Nanook as as its own character? Um, I am going to say yes. Sam does get Nanook as uh, as part of his kit. I, I'm going to <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I was a game master and a player asked me, I would probably say yes to that at the table. So I think I have to say yes to that at, at the draft. Yeah, we'd have to gamify it. Uh, that may have changed may have changed uh, my selection. Okay, if we choose Star. <laughs> who I don't think is ever really an antagonist in this film, so I feel okay with the potential of choosing Star as a character. Um, do you get non-vampire Laddie? Because she is sort of... I mean, I fear like maybe once once the movie resolves itself, I'm guessing Laddie probably goes back to their parents. Right. Um, there, there is an answer to that, and the answer, of course, is uh, whether or not you consider the bridging comics between this we, we haven't mentioned that there are two other lost boy movies uh lost boys the tribe and lost boys the thirst we will discuss those on our intermission yes we i will. am watching those for <laughs> intermission and i am reading both graphic novel series reign of frogs and just another series that bridges the tribe to thirst just called the lost boys 
Laddie's, what happens with Laddie is actually explained in those. But again, it isn't a part of the original canon uh, because there was supposed to be a sequel to um, Lost Boys called Lost Girls. But you know what? Let's not get into that. The question is, does Laddie come with Star? And it sounds like the answer is no. I don't think so. I think Nanook as a, as a dog is that makes sense, but having a separate sentient NPC there, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, I ask this because anyone who's listening to this who has ever been a game master knows that their players will ask the same and similar questions uh, when something like this comes up, and so I am just trying to reflect the times. Rafe, you have selected this film for our December podcast, and I consider this my Christmas present from you, <laughs> allowing me to select first. I would also like to draw your attention to the fact that my birthday is in February, so <laughs> I will make my selection I was looking at this going, okay, who's going to go well with Moses? Who's going to go well with Data? You know, it's like, clearly, if I have a team and I'm assembling a team, having an expert on vampires and the supernatural who who run a comic book shop, that seems like it would be the obvious choice. However, Sam gets a dog and, and Nanook is the most effective member of, of this film. Yep. Uh, how, I, but I, I say unto you again, sir, however... I am not taking Sam. I am not taking either of the Frog Brothers. I am not taking Star. I am not taking Michael. Rafe, I am taking this opportunity to take advantage of the one background adult character. And for my selection of the draft for the Lost Boys, I am choosing Grandpa Emerson. I... I... I never saw that coming. (laughs) Oh my god. Goodness, that's um, yeah, that's a good pick. Damn, yeah. I didn't even yeah. think there, about there Grandpa was, Emerson. And here's the thing: there was never a moment of hesitation. As soon as I knew we were doing this, I knew exactly who I had. I think, from a narrative standpoint, um, having the elderly guy who's never, like, never actually—he's not physically going to take care of stuff for them, but he is knowledgeable. He knows the area. He's creepy and weird. Uh, Rafe, before I watched this movie, I did not drink root beer. Rafe, before this movie, I did not eat double stuffed Oreo cookies. But after this movie, I did both. Uh, I claimed the second shelf on our refrigerator is mine. I mean, you have to understand how much this film was a part of my DNA. And the grandpa, while barely in this film, I think is genius. Uh, And I love the idea of assembling a group and having him either either as a PC or an NPC. So I, I, I cannot imagine my team without Grandpa Emerson. Uh, and there we go. I, I'm not upset with you for picking Grandpa Emerson. I, I expected to be upset with you for your pick. I am not upset with you for your pick. I'm upset with myself for not even having considered that for a second. Because now, the, the, as soon as the words left your mouth, I was like, oh... That would be the perfect adult to have as kind of the mentor figure for your group. And you've done it, and I I bow to you, sir. That's that's phenomenal. There's a couple of other ones coming up that might be equal to the task, but but this was the first one that jumped out at me. So yeah, how about you? All right. Well, I <laughs> I I literally had had written down and then crossed out the name on my list because I knew you were going to pick him. So I'm gonna go with no, I'm not going to go with Sam, even though he gets Nanook, because that would be really awesome. I'm going to go with Edgar Frog. I really expected to pick Alan Frog. Um, of course you are. 
because I expected you to pick Edgar, but I'm going to pick Edgar Frog. I I love sure. uh, the conspiracy nut aspect of it, uh, as we'll talk about as we get into gamifications. I think there's a lot of value in allowing that kind of thing at your table uh, and making use of it. Uh, and uh, now I get Mikey and uh, a Corey together just <laughs> from a different universes. It's the multiverse coming together. So and uh, uh, now now that you have made that pick. Uh, I will let you take a peek behind the curtain of how I was originally going to run the draft. The original, my original intention with this draft is get all the Corys. I was going to get <laughs> Corey Feldman from every movie because he's in several Kids on Bikes movies. And I was going to make sure I got a Corey Feldman from each one. I was like, which is why in the very first draft, I was like, I might get mouth. Like my initial thing is like, I came up with all these excuses for why he might be good for a team. No, the answer was I real from com for, from a purely comedy standpoint. I just wanted a team of Corey Feldman's. Well, and it's worth noting, we've already had him pop up in two out of our three movies. Of course, two of our three movies have also had Richard Donner involved. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and there's still movies out there that we could have Corey pop back up again. So you, you could have had your opportunity for that. Nope, I'm good. I'm good uh, being Corey-less uh, uh, for three of my three picks. So there All we right. go. That finishes up the film discussion portion of the podcast. We're going to take a quick break. You can hear about another podcast you might want to check out, and then we will be back to talk about the gamification of The Lost Boys. I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery, and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. Welcome back. We have now reached the segment of Never Say Die, where we are going to look at the Lost Boys from a role-playing standpoint. So we are going to gamify the movie. Now understand, for those who are listening in for the first time, and I know, why wouldn't you? You see the word Lost Boys, why wouldn't you jump in onto this podcast for the first time? Uh, we are not telling you how to just turn the Lost Boys from start to finish into a role-playing game. You can do that, certainly, but what we want to do is how do you capture the spirit of the Lost Boys in simple truths uh, that allow you to, through mechanics and understanding of kind of the props and uh, setup, how to run a game inspired by the Lost Boys. The first thing you have to do is you got to get your truths on, right? What are some certain aspects that you're going to find regardless of the system you know if you want to do lost boys in space if you want to do lost boys in the wild west if you want to do lost boys underwater all of those are particularly possible yes i know i'm thinking about that now and i do want to do subaquatic <laughs> lost boys um 
There is a Neverland role-playing game. It's very different, but it is possible here. Uh, what are the truths that you need? And I'm going to start off with one of them, and I know that we we both kind of thinking about it. Uh, we are dealing with vampires, and vampire mythology is... It's all over the place, you know, depending on your culture. There's In, in the same way that every culture has a Cinderella, every culture has a, a, a version of the vampire in some form or another. So it's sort of important to figure out what your aspects of your vampire are. But the first one that's so key to this story is the head vampire. So my first truth is this. There is a head vampire. And if there are other vampires in the story, killing the head vampire will, and I'm doing this in quotations, cure the other vampires. So there's going to be a vampire hierarchy, right? So the head vampire first changed, then the ones that they're trying to change. And so in the same way that David is trying to convert Star and Michael, uh, and in some form Laddie, having already done so with the other three members of his gang, David in turn was changed by Max, right? So uh, you kill Max, David becomes a not vampire. Michael becomes a not vampire anymore. Uh, so that's that's it. Since uh, killing the head vampire... Um, is a cure. So that's my first truth. I think you have to have that in order to have the feel of this vampire film. And not all vampire stories have a head vampire, kill it, and you're you're saved. But this one does. How about yeah. you, Rafe? What's another truth for us? Well, let me expand on that one first. Um, keep in mind, you know, if you're trying to gamify this, uh, most likely the other players at your table are also familiar with the Lost Boys. So they're going to know to look for the unassuming guy uh, as the head vampire. So have some fun with it. I was watching this uh, the other day in preparation for this, and I was like, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if Star was the head vampire? She was never suspected. Wouldn't that be an interesting twist? So have some fun with who you decide to make that head vampire be and go in an unexpected direction. Because again, your players are going to be familiar with this movie, most likely. So don't go with the obvious. I'm going to jump in real real quick. We did say we were going to mention this in the intermission, but I I just want to throw this out there now since we're on the topic. In the comic book, Reign of Frogs, which branches uh, this Lost Boys with the next Lost Boys, which is the tribe, which came out a decade or so later, who do you think the head vampire, there's another head vampire, uh, who is it? It's someone who is either seen or mentioned in the Lost Boys. I have no idea because almost everybody who's mentioned, it's Michael. It's Michael, right? The Widow Johnson. Oh! Again, just like Star, that would be brilliant. That would blindside players. Right, and there was always this weird question that my friends and I had, is Grandpa part vampire? What is in the root beer bottles right. if it's not root beer? Why is he taxiderming all those creatures? Because the whole point is you don't become a full vampire until you've had your first human kill. Is Grandpa running around killing all those animals to hold off? We see him in the day, though. So it's, it's you know, but like, but not quite. Um, so that's that's sort of, uh, I think, was a neat thing. But like, so you beat the Whittle Johnson or another peripher- uh, peripheral character. That was a hard word to say. Uh, then, then you have some fun with it. But I agree. I, I, you know, and 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 when you're creating your your world with your players, give them a lot of options. Give them, you know, like because if you can't just go around doing what the Frog Brothers do to Max, uh, to every single character, because eventually there's going to be consequences if you, you know, squirt everyone with holy water, if you put garlic on everybody, uh, because some of those things aren't going to work, which is another truth in this, which is have some fun with the vampire mythology. 
you and I were talking about this just briefly before we got started that you think it would be a really cool idea to make sure that the the things that affect vampires negatively aren't always going to work. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you look at the movie and it it does a great job uh, of establishing the mythology for its vampires. Like they they flat out say at one point, garlic doesn't work against these vampires. So I I, I love. Uh, that idea, but do do you do need to set up a strong mythology for what the vampires of your game go by? And yeah, I mean, you certainly d- you don't have to stick with the norms uh, of that that have been handed down for generations as far as what to expect from vampires. Yeah, one of the other things too, you know, as someone who clearly liked vampires, vampires can't cross running water. That's not even mentioned in this. The, the cool thing about the Frog Brothers is they're getting their information from a comic book. And who knows? Uh, I really like the idea that uh, your, you and your players come up with, what, like six things about vampires and only three of them turn out to be true, but you don't tell the players what it is until they try it, you know, and then you get that moment where you forget about uh, inviting them into your house kind of a thing. Uh, you don't have to do the inviting them part in the house because, let's face it, if they've watched The Lost Boys, none of them are going to invite anybody into anything right. ever, and they're going to assume that works. But of course, the the point of the movie is, if you don't invite them in, then they're just not invulnerable. Right. Max can walk in anytime he wants and just start tearing you apart if he's not trying to be deceptive. I, I, I have to ask this, though, Drew, because you have talked in the past about your love of tangible props and stuff. Is Drew crazy enough that he would generate his own comic book to give to players as a prop drew is um (laughs) but luckily for me i don't have to um vampires are everywhere does exist as a generic fan-made prop for the movie but what i would do is i would if we had a session zero I would get the information for the kids, uh, for, for the kids, for kids on bikes or whatever system we're playing, uh, and then I would probably do fun drawings. If you if you've watched Buffy, uh, the fantastic episode Hush, in which um, the the gentlemen come to town and steal everyone's voices and no one can make a sound and and they get to creepily glide through the town. There is a slideshow with some of the most horrific. Uh, Giles-generated illustrations. That's sort of the comic book I would probably create. Um, it does It does help that I do know many comic book writers and illustrators, but I don't think I would hire them to help me unless they were actually a part of the group. I have had some of those illustrators in my gaming groups before. Um, yeah, I would probably do like a one-page or a, a, a portfolio to hand out um, to players. That does sound... Oh, boy. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about props because I think... That's not the only prop that would be really good in this. I think getting the pictures of the players and making them missing children in the fictional <laughs> world that their characters are playing in would be also really amazing because there's a Scooby-Doo aspect to this story um, that there's, you know, what is going on. Rafe, clearly Lost Boys is a vampire film. Clearly you were going to make this into a vampire film, but I think one of the big switches that you could do on your players is not make it a vampire game. You could potentially have the exact same spirit of the Lost Boys and just use a different type of monster. Sure. Or generate a vampire that is so far afield from the classic as to throw your player. So you change your player's expectations. Right. Um, we have sort of talked about the 
fantastic system by Evil Hat Games, Monster of the Week. Part of that game is establishing what the threat is before the threat actually appears to the players uh, so they can be prepared or unprepared for it. I think the same can be set up. If you're doing Lost Boys via Monster of the Week, I think the posters could potentially provide leads for the, the PCs to go looking for those. And I think it would also be fun. I think anytime uh, you can hand your players something tangible, I'm a big fan of puzzles, as we talked about in our Goonies episode, that would be awesome as well. So I think, you know, I'd throw that in as a truth, maybe, um, uh, that the public is aware that there's a problem, like people have gone missing, mm-hmm. um, and they may or may not know. For instance, Grandpa knows what's going on and never mentions vampires the entire film as a potential threat. Oh, hey, sweetie, I know that you've just moved here with your children uh, and your child is under my roof and everything and acting really weird, but I'm just going to skip the whole point where there are vampires in Santa Carla. Um, So you as a player may not just go straight to the comic book store and meet the Frog Brothers. It could be that the florist knows something about vampires, which is why there's so much wolf's bane growing around. Sure, Aconite doesn't actually take care of vampires, but they would be a good source. Or perhaps it's the gravedigger, the Santa Carla gravedigger. That's the guy who who knows the information. You just have to find those characters. Um, I think there's going to be a certain level of knowledge within the population of whatever town you're creating. And some of them might be willing to help you if you don't, you know, do something stupid. Yeah, I I would play it, and again, this is a matter of personal preference. I would play it that most of the town knows. It's mm-hmm. kind of an untalked about secret that they that they just don't talk about it. But everybody knows something is going on. Now, some may have more knowledge than others. I would not. I would not play it in a way that the players can just go up to anybody and say, "Hey, what can you tell me about vampires?" You know, I would I would right. definitely play it down, but I would use it if the players get stuck in in their progress, you know, then you can use somebody they've encountered a couple of times who goes, "Come on, you know, come here, come here, come here. I, I, let me tell you something. Yeah, sure. vampires are real and here's a tip." Or if they get into danger, which is exactly what the movie does when grandpa comes in at the end of the film. That's the kids have gotten right. into danger to the point that the DM can't get them out of it. So here comes grandpa. So I would yeah. I would play it a little bit bigger, broader than you are, but I also would really play it as kind of an underlying everybody's aware, but nobody's talking about it because talking about it acknowledges it. Right. And and it's what's something that the movie does, which is kind of interesting, which is the, you know, we talk about the um, boardwalk. There, the, it shows that Santa Carla is a bustling, busy, active, playful town. If they're all fully aware that there's something horribly wrong, then the the agent the why they're doing that the motivation is live while you can before you die if no one's moving out of town you know it's like an interesting it's a clearly a very poor town so maybe people can't afford to leave so they're just having as much fun so there's a certain level of denial that i think is in that and that's kind of fun it actually informs both your game and the movie yep. um let's talk about our session zero Some wait of the wait, wait that we, we got want. one more truth oh. to talk about uh and that is uh that one of the players is turning one of the players has been impacted by whatever it is, whatever threat you decide, most likely vampires, but if you decide to go in a different direction, uh, one of the players has been impacted by this. They are turning, and this this adds probably our favorite game mechanic, because we've <laughs> talked about it every episode so far, but it adds a ticking clock to the plot that if they don't figure out what's going on, if they don't figure out who the lead vampire is, if they don't figure out how to resolve this, then that player is going to go away. He is going to 
become evil, he is going to probably kill them. He becomes an additional threat that is only held off by their progress in the campaign. And, and Drew, this strikes me as the type of thing that you would sit down and you would chart out like a progression of this turning so that after, you know, three hours of play, the player suddenly has access to these abilities or has these weaknesses, you know, that after five hours of play, oh, sorry, Michael can't go out in the sun anymore type thing. That that strikes me as a Drew type thing. Am I right? It is, which is, I'm just kicking myself for almost walking ahead and moving past this truth, <laughs> which was staring, It's which is so freaking obvious to me that I'm a little annoyed that I didn't think of it. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. I think if, um, I mean, GMs, you you handle this however you want, but if I'm running this game, I want to make sure that the player also doesn't know what is happening to them. Yes. Um, and I don't give them that chart, which would be sort of like they, in the same way that Michael, as he's turning into a vampire or is beginning to turn into the beginning of a vampire. Like, we don't find out that Michael isn't supposed to turn into a vampire until he gets his first kill, right? It's like he's supposed to be Star's first kill. That didn't work out. Um, it was all about Star to begin with. I wouldn't let my players know when these things happen. But when it does happen, it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to just slip you this little piece of paper and you can do this, but now you can't do this. Yeah, absolutely right. I would I would 100% make probably many charts. Let's face it. I would I would probably come <laughs> up with I would probably come up with two or three charts uh and then depending on how the play was the general feel of the game was playing again are we doing this as a teen thing are we doing this as a comedy is we doing this as a horror um there's a there's a lot of different ways you could play the spirit of a of a, um a lost boys game because it is all over the place i think that's great and i'm so glad that you mentioned that and i feel real bad i'm gonna go into the corner and eat these maggots um <laughs> Our, before I move on to things to cover in the, the zero session, session zero, uh, Rafe, is there any other truth that I'm forgetting? No, I think that's that's good. Now we can move on to the zero session. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So things to come up with. I think there are certain set pieces that you're going to need in this game. Um, you're going to need a creature's lair, regardless of if they're vampires or not. I think, you know, make sure that the lair has some historical significance to the the town or creation that you're the world that you're creating in the same way that you know i learned about the san francisco earthquakes because of this movie i was like really is that a thing oh wow they had fires too why would anyone move to california in san francisco <laughs> i would also like to point out that five years later i moved to california um uh <laughs> yeah um, and, and with the layer um i mean the, the way it's presented in the movie it's simple it, it, it's not mm -hmm. hidden i mean it's just kind of a place that people don't go but you also, if you wanted to make your game more elaborate, there's nothing wrong with turning that into kind of a dungeon crawl onto its own. Make it more complex, make it hidden, make it a, a tangled web of tunnels and stuff to get to it and, and have some fun with that. Or keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, I, there's nothing to say that you couldn't potentially just make the head vampire a part of that layer. If you're doing a one-shot and you only have three hours to kill and you're a bunch of kids and you don't have any, like, physical teens to do this fighting, I think three 14-year-olds three in a vampire's lair that is uh, cavernous, I think that works for this movie. I think you could basically get that same feel. However, if you don't want it to end there, uh, then there's a third act, which is a base under siege, um, right. which I think is, is really fun. We've talked about base under siege with Attack the Block, Again, just like Attack the Block, I think you could figure out a way to gamify what you are going to do to prepare. Like, the, our characters in the movie are given time, you know, 
we have three hours until sunset. How, what are we going to do to fortify this house? I think each of our players should write down one thing that their character is working on. And then as the game master, you tell them what how that logistically affects any kind of roles if you are playing a game that has uh, dice rolling or card playing or whatever. So for instance, if you're like, I'm barricading all the doors, um, that might give them a higher armor class or um, a, a more resistance to bludgeoning damage or something along those lines. I'm filling the bathtub with garlic and holy water. By the way, try to imagine how many canteens. I think that might be the funniest scene in the movie of them breaking in. <laughs> to a church in the middle of a christening and filling up their canteens and then slowly backing out. I love that scene. I completely forgot about that scene. Uh, really a great scene. They do not set up uh, to use the, the taxidermied animals as a weapon. That is no. just a thing that happens um, in the film. And I think that's one of those happy accidents that, you know, always, you know, it, just because it's not something they plan for, don't discount that, you know, let the happy accident happen. Let your players be creative. This is one of those opportunities as a, a game master to really let your players inform you in the direction of the action, because as a player, they love that. And as an, a game master, you know, loosen your grip on the wheel, let them do some of the driving. Absolutely. Uh, and I think driving the narrative that way, you know, it's like, in Dungeons and Dragons, I never give my players magical weapons. I'm going to give you, uh, you know, something that could be used in a hundred different ways, and I'm going to let you be creative. I think ultimately the gaming experience is going to be far richer for both you as a player and for me as a game master. So certainly do that. Uh, Rafe, you had mentioned the boardwalk. How, how would you gamify the boardwalk? Well, I mean, I think it's a key location, as you said, even though it doesn't, it, it advances the plot, but none of the encounters happen there. So I think that's where you get a lot of your footwork done. You you have definitely set that up with some just outlandish ideas for little shops. And I mean, hell, look online at maps of existing boardwalks and see what's there. I mean, there's always, you know, magic shops and uh, House of Horrors. And uh, I mean, in this case, there's a video rental store. I mean, those don't really exist anymore, but I'm sure you do like a used video game store or something like that, pawn shop, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Think the more touristy you can make it, the less of interest it's going to be to locals. Right. I mean, the locals mm -hmm. and you probably can testify to this, having grown up with an area like that, Drew, the locals don't pay as much attention to those kind of really touristy. A lot of those things that I just mentioned, which could be fun. Now, if your players, if your characters are newcomers to the town, like the family is here, then they're going to have more appeal. So, so take that into account as well. Yeah. I mean, ask your players what kind of shop they think they're going to find. Uh, I think that's always really good. What's what's like, and then and then you know if, if once they give it to you, so they go okay. Now name another one, but make it weirder. Um, you know, uh, questions you could ask something along the lines of, um, what is something that you can find on this boardwalk that you probably won't find anywhere else, uh, any other city you've ever been to? What's the thing that catches your eye? What's the thing that you find disturbing? What's one of the things that draws your attention? What is something that as a teen you're not allowed to go into? What is something as an adult character you wouldn't be interested in? Really do that shopping with the boardwalk create those spaces that help to inform your characters as well you know learn a little bit more about your characters by their shopping and do a little bit of what we call retail therapy in a, in, a, in a same way you're right i grew up in myrtle beach south carolina there is nothing of substance in that town um my entire life was that stupid boardwalk uh, we called it the pavilion it's no longer there oh i'm sorry to hear that yeah i think they're building a new one uh, they maybe have already built it it's probably honestly it's probably a hotel um, and the, the boardwalk <laughs> is also your perfect opportunity for set dressing 
for those yes. missing person signs, for that graffiti that gives a hint that there's something underlying here going on. Uh, it's not just about the shops, but also about, and I talked about this on the intermission for Attack the Block, but really building those scenes with descriptive language for your players. Like, be prepared to talk about some of those missing people flyers. You know, jot down a dozen ideas of, like, names and ages and descriptions, you know, so that you can give that to players. Because the more of that you can load onto them, the deeper you're building the threat, the, the awareness mm-hmm. of the threat. Uh, and then the same thing with, like, the graffiti and such. Yeah, I think um, if I were running something along those lines, I would have them encounter some of the missing characters. And one of them could be like, oh, yeah, my parents are just super overprotective. I just need to get out of there. Uh, and they aren't actually missing. And you'd be kind of like, oh, my gosh, maybe they're a vampire. And then you, you talk with them and they're fine. They're just, you know, they're they're trying to get away from their helicopter parents. Then they find another uh, individual later on that night. And that one tries to kill them. Right, and the fake-out is is a perfect adaptation of Lost Boys. I mean, how Grandpa's quote-unquote dead when they first show up because they don't... They don't right. It's like that, that kind of fake-out, especially if you choose to make it this horror-slash-teen-movie type theme that fits perfectly in this world. Yeah. We should probably talk a little bit about um, systems that you could probably jump into. Again, the whole idea of coming up with truths and uh these kind of gamification is you can play this with any system again you can do lost boys in space i don't know how but you probably could but there are systems that are already kind of built in that allow you to take the part of inexperienced hunters um i'm just going to run through a couple that i i mean there's it's i love doing research for this podcast because i'm i'm always introduced to new games i did not know existed uh, let's start with the basics first. Kids on bikes. I think this is a fine game. We discussed with uh, Attack the Block. Attack the Block is a full-on combat scenario, whereas Lost Boys is not. The hand-to-hand, the characters are going to get beat um, in the same way that going against the Goonies going up against Fratellis are going to. Um, that's where the tricks uh, and the traps come into play. So I still think Kids on Bikes would work fine with that one. We did mention Monster of the Week by Evil Hat. The thing about Monster of the Week is your characters are monster hunters to begin with, so it takes sort of the inexperienced aspect of it, which I think is really great and indicative of most uh, Kids on Bikes movies. It sort of pushes that to one side, so maybe Monster of the Week isn't the best, but you could, if you work with your game master, figure out a trope uh, or a, a what were they calling a playmat um, that you allow you to to kind of work in closer to to what we're seeing here? If you're going with white, I mean, I, you know, I think of vampire. Uh, these vampire movies came out at the same time as Vampire: The Masquerade by White Wolf. I also played that way more than I probably should have. Uh, was healthy for me. So if the flip side of that is Hunter the Vigil, uh, so where you play vampire hunters, but again, those hunters are experienced. So that gets a little tricky. Uh, there's one that I have never played before or even really heard of before this week by Pelgrane Press um, that uses the gumshoe mechanic, which is one that I I'm, we're going to talk about a lot uh, on this podcast called Knight's Black Agents. Um, again, professional hunters. There's not a lot of inexperienced vampire hunter characters uh, games out there. There's one by Memento Mori called Inspectors, I-N, and then Spectre, like the ghost, um, which... 
I I love a pun. I think it's a great pun. I have not read it. I haven't seen it yet, but you better believe that I will have that in my collection by the end of the month. Um, <laughs> there's another one that I'm also ordering called iHunt. So just like an iPhone. I hunt the RPG, which is killing monsters in a gig economy, which is using the Fate Core system, which I, again, um, Evil Hat, which I, uh, it's a very different storytelling system. Uh, I do like it quite a bit. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll, I'll pick that one up. I'm, I'm buying up all sorts of games specifically for kids on bike stuff. And then of course there's Dungeons and Dragons. Again, if you are trying to simulate being a kid, uh, in experience, just play a zero or first level character, um, and keep your modifier stat caps real low so that you are ineffective in physical combat all of those are pretty good you know we, we talk about this from the point of the the vampire hunters i think you can also play lost boys from the point of the vampires to be honest um and sure. still get the same feel um so if you want to play as the vampire uh characters there's probably some gamification ways but there's oodles of vampire games out there yeah. um yeah but keep in mind our vampires in the lost boys are you know, they got beaten by a bunch of, you know, preteens. So you're not going to be super effective killers. <laughs> I want to emphasize something Drew said a couple of minutes ago, though. No matter what system you, you choose, make sure that it's a system that allows you to uh, really make use of your players' imaginations, both in mm-hmm. setting up the, the vampire mythology, in setting up those fortifications and improvised weapons if you are going to have combat, especially because these are kids, they're not going to have access to a, a, a wide range of normal weapons. And really, whatever you do, make sure you take advantage of the player's imagination. They should have a lot of say in how things progress, which is great because then you don't have to come up with it but you have to be prepared for it. So make sure you understand rules for whatever system you're using on improvised weapons and how can you adapt this and that kind of thing. One more system. Rafe, you're absolutely sure. The improvised weapon part is such a fun thing and it's also a real fiddly bit. If you are listening to this and you're a rules lawyer and you really feel like you need to know the numbers, it's fine. You play the game that you want to play. I, I find that stopping the action to look up a rule kills the momentum of the story and the story is always going to be key for me there's a game that i think would be perfect for this because it's so rules light and that's lasers and feelings which is a one-page star trek knockoff there are only two stats lasers for all your technical stuff and feelings all your emotional stuff you could do this and i'm trying to think of a good lost boys pun you could call this uh, you just wait till mom comes home you could call this death by stereo you could call it i mean there's probably you could call it Reign of Frogs. Uh, I think you could probably, because because the stats don't matter as much as the story and the dice rolling is simple, Lasers and Feelings is just a great way to just jump into a vampire game. You'd probably be able to uh, stat it and figure out what your logistics are for this in like five minutes and then just start playing. You are only limited by your adherence to the rules and the system. And, and you don't, remember, all rules are merely suggestions um you play what works best for you there's a lot of resources out there just type in lost boys and role-playing game i uh we might post a couple of the resources but there are folks who have already statted all the characters for many systems there's a larping group that explains how to do a whole lost boys larp if you're into larping certainly would be fun there's a gurps lost boys system like this is a movie that's so near and dear to our tribe of gamers and movie nerds of a certain age in particular that the resources are out there you don't even need to listen to us but um i think you follow our truths 
uh, and that we've laid down tonight, I think you're gonna you're gonna be great. And please, if you play, let us know how it turned out. I mean, oh, this yeah. is the same for all games. You know, find you know if you find us on social media, and we're gonna tell you where that is in just a moment. Um, I I think it's gonna be absolutely brilliant. I really want to hear how your games work. I want to hear you about your Goonies. I want to hear about your Attack the Block. I want to hear about your Lost Boys. I want to hear about all games moving forward. Rafe, is there anything else before we let these fine folks go? I don't think so. I think we've kind of hit the the key ideas of this. I I, I think out of all of the movies we've picked so far, uh, this is probably the easiest one to run in a short session or yes. as a full campaign. Like I I I can't visualize Attack the Block as a short short session. I can't visualize Goonies as a short session. I could picture Lost Boys done that way, but I also, as we've talked in the past, my brain goes to campaign. I definitely could do Lost Boys as a campaign. So yeah, I agree. I think you could. I think a map of um, different towns in California, uh, where you go in as the, essentially the post, like the Frog Brother ca- like characters post Lost Boys, mm-hmm. going to different towns, learning the town, pretending to be someone they're not, and then finding the vampires and staking them. I think it's great. I think it, I mean, I think we all know how to run a vampire game for the most part. And I think with these, you can get that flavor in. Um, So I guess the only thing left to say is uh, folks in two weeks time, roughly uh, you join us for our, the lost boys intermission episode where we will discuss our second opinions, things that we may have missed this time around because we're just so excited to talk about the lost boys. Um, We will talk over our uh, listeners responses, emails and such. We've gotten some really good comments uh, fairly recently that I can't wait to share with people. Uh, We'll talk about what's grabbed our attention on Kickstarter and I will select the movie that I want to talk about come January. So all of that's going to be in two weeks. Uh, And if you want to join us for any of that, Rafe, tell them where they can find us. All right. You can email us at the never say die podcast altogether at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at never say die cast. It is a private group, but it will let you in if you request uh, to be let in. So I can't throw a link to it on the show notes, but we, uh, it is there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at never say diecast. Uh, you can find me individually at town Hess on Twitter. And I invite you to check out my other podcast. Have not seen this where it's just movie discussion, but a lot of fun movie discussion. Drew's been on there a couple of times and some great episodes there. Yeah. Uh, you can find me at drew M. Meyer at Twitter. Uh, yeah. Like you said, join the, join us on Facebook. Uh, we're having some fun conversations. Um, it's, it's a hoot. Uh, also, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and Megan Daly for our show artwork. Until then, even if that cute girl tries to eat you, never say die.